With change comes uncertainty, fear, and anxiety, and the tendency to cling to the status quo, perhaps the last thing we want to do in a fast-changing world. From Chris Marshall's book, Decoding Change, Understanding What the Heck is Going On, and Why We Should Be Optimistic About Our Future. Welcome back to Season 10 of the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we connect the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning that's finally being taught in our schools today and emotional intelligence training used in our modern workplaces for improved well-being, achievement, productivity, and results. Using what I saw as the missing link, the application of practical neuroscience. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning and launched this podcast five years ago with the goal of bringing all the leading experts together in one place to uncover the most current research that would bring back how the brain learns best by taking us all to new and often unimaginable heights. For today's episode number 296, we meet up with Chris Marshall, a professional futurist, behavioral scientist, and author of the book, Decoding Change, Understanding What the Heck is Going On and Why We Should Be Optimistic About Our Future. The title of this book should give you an idea of the direction of this conversation. A bit about Chris, he's the head of investment strategy at Dragon Investment Managers, where he leads global market insights across all asset classes, including equities, real estate, and credit markets. He's the founder and chief storyteller of Snowdonia Distillery, the first copper distillery in Wales. He's got his master's in psychology and MSc in behavioral economics. He's the host of the Transitional Matters podcast, where he covers trends, mega trends, and transitions that are going on in the world around us and how they impact our life. Let's get right to this conversation where I'm looking forward to what we can learn together about the world from Chris's point of view, the point of view of a behavioral scientist and futurist who looks at how the world is changing, not just from the visible elements, but the things below the surface. Let's meet Chris Marshall and look at the trends and megatrends that he says are the drivers of change around us. Welcome, Chris Marshall. Thank you so much for joining me today all the way from Wales. Is that right? That's absolutely spot on. Yeah, in the, in the north of Wales, up the sandwich between the coastline and the mountains. Oh, so cool, because that was what I was going to ask you, if you could tell me something that I might not know about Wales. Just from looking at my statistics, I can see the outline and it looks like a a rugged coastline, and it did say that there's uh, mountains out there, which is just my alley. Yeah, well, not quite mountains as the rest of the world would call them, but we're we're very fond of them. Yeah, they're more little hills. Oh, um, I should. I'm going to get in trouble saying this, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we've got the Snowdonia Range here up in North Wales, which is which is stunning. I mean, it is a it is a stunning part of the world, and about 30 minutes from the mountains to the coast, and I live 
smack, smack down in the middle of those two. Um, what do you know, not know about Wales? Well, yeah, I, actually the coastline, it's, it's got 1,680 miles, I think, of coastline. Uh, incredible beaches. Yeah, a real area of natural beauty. Um, at one time, I think there were more sheep than people in Wales. I think that the scale has been tipped back. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a beautiful part of the world. Very nice. Well, do you ever look at your podcast statistics when you're doing your podcast? And I noticed there's only three downloads this month in Wales. So I'm hoping you can tell all your friends and family and get my numbers up in Wales. <laughs> we'll see what we can do about that number. Uh, yeah, I do. I do look at the stats, actually. Um, I, I find on my podcast that it, I have a quite a majority listenership in the U.S., um i think i think you guys over there you're just more on board with podcasts than we are in europe at the moment um but uh but no it is always interesting looking at those stats and seeing where people are kind of like listening in from and and where you're reaching it's it's amazing how far a podcast goes it really is you know i used to like writing books until i i did this podcast thing and and it's it's nice to have a book but when you see your reach going into these like obscure places i'm thinking really who's listening hi out there you know it's <laughs> a neat feeling no absolutely yeah really good so so chris i watched your keynote introduction on youtube and i think your book decoding change really should be required reading for everybody who wants to plan for the future and that's all of us right and I, well, you're, you're not going to find me disagreeing with that statement. I think everybody should read it. No, <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, so in this keynote, though, you ask your audiences all around the world one question, and I was actually captivated by this. This one question that you asked, and I'd like to ask it to you and see what do you see? Do you intuitively feel like the world right now is going through radical change, and what do you see? Yeah, absolutely, I, I do, and I for me. Um, it's it's change coming from everywhere. I think that's what makes this different. And that's the kind of what I try and paint as a framework in the book is that why things feel so fast and so furious and so just uncertain um, right now is we're actually as humans, we, we're, we're fairly used to constant change from technology. Um, the pace of change from technology does go through phases of fast periods and slow periods. And we're we're certainly entering a faster period of that. But I actually think that the the level of change, the, la- the level of kind of uncertainty and anxiety and stress even, is coming from the fact that every layer of the world around us is changing. So it's not just tech, it's cultural philosophy, it's the natural environment, it's regulation, uh, it's business, it's product. You know, we can, we can take any of those slices and talk about the changes originating there, not they're not kind of changing because something else has moved. There are actually changes originating in every single one of those places I've just talked about. Definitely. Now, now we focus a lot on the podcast about ways to strengthen our mind through like healthy lifestyle and understanding how our brain health impacts our mental and physical health. And I'm always the one that's trying to keep the positive angle to things. And then I've got other people around me that say, hey, did you see this on the news? And And I keep saying, don't tell me this, but you know, because it it just seems to shut me down and and get rid of my creative ability. And so I just wonder what you think about this. What happens to our creative ability in times of change? Like we don't want to ignore what's going on, but how can we find that balance and keep our decision-making brains up and running? 
That, that's a really good question. And, and that's really the, the kind of the core of my work, um, both as a behavioral scientist and, and coach, um, is really kind of helping what I call ambitious decision makers. Um, the people who have to kind of make crucial high stakes decisions in these really uncertain landscapes. Um, and you're absolutely right. When things start getting uncertain, things start moving, we can easily lose that creativity. We certainly lose that ability of kind of breakthroughs, of insight, of aha moments. So one of the questions I often ask audiences, actually, when I get up on stage, is I just say, where's your best thinking? And I start, I say, kind of put your hand up when I say the location. And I always start with a little bit of a kind of a joke because I want the audience to be aware of something. And I always start with the with the office. So I say, put your hand up if your best thinking's in the office. And nobody does, yeah. unless, of course, they're sat next to their boss. And then they're kind of like, oh, I better say yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and as soon as you start then saying, oh, it's on the beach, or it's when I'm in the shower, or it's when I'm walking, or it's whatever people find really, really safe and relaxing, um, they start to say, yeah, that's where I have my best thinking. And the point being, coming back to your question, is it's got nothing to do with the location. It's got everything to do with the state that your brain and body is in. Um, and that's the key, is uncertainty doesn't actually affect our thinking. It's the effects of uncertainty on us that then affect our thinking. Um, so to kind of pull that apart, if uncertainty makes you anxious and ruminate and kind of a higher arousal level because your brain's kind of going, oh my word, everything's moving. I need to find out more. That kind of that hypervigilant, hyperfocus that our bodies are so good at, then it actually blocks areas of your brain, the areas which we would say are our abstract thinking, our creative thinking. Um, because we've we've essentially changed the state our brain and body's in at that point. We're throwing at it what we call cues of threat. So your your body and brain's going, oh my word, this is uncertain. And uncertainty to an, to us as an organism is I'm not sure what the future looks like. Right. And when we're in that state, and bring it back to what you were just saying a second ago, you know, mass media is like the best at, at doing this because they know if they can create a state where you're like, oh my word, this is throwing me this way and that way, and I'm not sure about any of this. And if it's got negativity in that headline, you have to read it because there's something in us in, in a kind of uh, uh, our sensory perception and our and our evolutionary kind of survival state is like, oh, I need to know what that is. Right. <laughs> but the, the, the problem is it throws us into a state where we can't think as well as we could. Definitely. Now, can we apply this here? Because I like to to really put this into real world situations. And I only know my experiences. So I'd like to throw out some and then you throw out some. Perfect. So, you know, like, so let's just say in education, it's always been an upheaval. Like, what's it going to look like in the next five to 10 years? It's like going through change. I even think about the corporate world, you know, when you're, you know, working in these offices, everything went haywire with with the pandemic. And now we're a lot of people are working remotely. And then, you know, you think about your sales goals or whatever your your job is that you're doing, you get these crazy numbers and you think, how am I ever going to do this? And your creativity shuts down. So I'm just thinking of all these situations like, um, you know, you name some. What, what do you see from looking at the world, all these uncertain experiences? 
Well, I think to be honest, I think it's everywhere, isn't it? I think that's the kind of the point of what we're saying. You know, it could be, you know, if, if you're young and you're just finishing college, it's like, well, what career do I go into? Or even what do I choose as kind of the degree I'm going to do? Or it could be, do I buy a house in this location or that location? Or do I move countries because I fear, I don't know, I'm in the UK. And let's just say, I fear that the UK is slipping behind. So do I move somewhere else? You know, there are all these massive decisions um, and those are amplified when you're then dealing with an organization. Because if you're like a key decision maker, that CEO or manager, not only have you got all of that personally, but you've got that as a team as well. Um, so for, for me, it's not so much it's it's not so much predicting or guessing where the world's going to go. I think that's important, but that's only one side of the coin. So I do an awful lot of work as a global investment strategist and a professional futurist. Um, and both of those things are kind of looking at, for me anyway, it's looking at trends and megatrends. You know, where are they headed? Where might they be taking us? Um, but it's not prediction. And there's another side of the coin, which I think both of those fields of study really benefit from, and that's the behavioral science side. And it's only when you glue those two things together, you're like, okay, so I've got some idea of direction of travel but I know there's still going to be massive amounts of uncertainty. And therefore, it's the strategies of how do I deal with that? And it's really, for me, it comes down to two phrases. So I developed this framework called pause, pause, move. And it's these two key pauses when things become chaotic. The first pause is actually beyond mindfulness. It's actually a real deep introspection, really coming inside and pausing, stopping and standing back. It's almost that feeling of, um, well, if I if I tell you my version, you might have a similar story in your life. For, for me, there's about 100, 200 meters away from my house. There's this bench and there's nothing actually particularly that special about this bench. It's like any other park bench, but it's its location. So I live in this Victorian town called, called Landedno and there's the sea either side of this small spit of land and this bench, I can see both sides. Wow. And it's elevated above this town. And even on the busiest days, that town seems quiet. It seems orderly. It seems like it's just it's just there in this really calm state from this bench. If I walk down there, all of a sudden I presented with a really hustly, hustle and bustle town, loads of people walking around, cars, people shopping. And for me, that's kind of what we're trying to do in that first pause is we're just trying to put things back in perspective. We're we're too frequently, let's say, say, I don't know, we can say to ourselves, I feel anxious, I feel scared, I feel pessimistic, I feel this. It's far better to put that in perspective and go, something in me feels scared. We're bigger than that feeling. Um, and so that's the first part. And once you can do that, you actually bring your stress state down. Because all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, the, it's not all encompassing. It's actually, I'm bigger than this feeling. And then that leads you to the place which I think is where humans just are, they're an optimal state. And by optimal state, I mean creative, collaborative, experimental. And that's that's playfulness. That's where we are designed to be as, as, as humans, in my opinion. Right, but we can't get there when we're freaking out and, and shut down, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's why you need that first pause of kind of, put things back in perspective and bring your stress state down. 
Um, and I think that's where we kind of have a struggle with language a lot in modern society. We think of stress as either on or off. It's either I'm okay or I'm stressed. <laughs> and it's it actually a continuum. You know, it's a scale that most people are using their stress response, if we talk about that, for being dynamic, being motivated, getting tasks done, being always on, being wired, and the I'm the most productive person. But they miss the point that what they're doing is they're basically biohacking their body and using this threat response, which is where it was designed, to motivate them all day long. And then they get stuck at that point. And that's where we start getting all these issues of chronic stress and maladaptive behaviors and addictions and, and everything else to try and we look to the external too often to calm ourselves. Um, yeah, you said something that really caught my attention with your bench there, because um, in two days, I'm interviewing someone who's been studying the ocean and the science behind what that does to our body oh, wow. was down. It's um, it's it, his book is called Blue Mind, and it's you know all about how being on near or by the ocean helps us be happier and more creative and more connected. And you just picked that bench there. Now I'm in Arizona, landlocked. There's no ocean here, so we've got to go somewhere to get that experience. But I also feel like that when I'm up in the mountain. So I just I just think it's interesting that. You picked your park bench. I don't have the ocean here. I'd go sit outside right right, and watch the waves if I could. Just wish I lived in California or somewhere right near the water because it, it's helpful. But um, I that's the first thing that I noticed. You picked right next to the water for your bench. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's actually anything in nature. Um, I, I think there's things which resonate individually with us. Um, so the term is biophilia. It's, um, you know, that's the kind of the feedback we get from nature, the naturally calming effect of a five minute walk through a forest, or as you said, through mountains or sitting by the ocean. Um, there is something we've overlooked. And actually, you know, kind of in a lot of my work, that's the, that's the thing which I've noticed the most is I'm not really discovering anything new. I'm just unearthing things that I think we knew hundreds of years ago, and we just decided that they were useless or we knew better as we came into the industrial era and we were like, no, we can, we can do away with sitting in nature. Like it's not efficient. Let's just get rid of it. Um, and now we're starting to go, Oh, perhaps, perhaps it's beneficial. Right. Right. I can't imagine just working without the nature part of, of my day. Just couldn't do it. I listened to your podcast, your most recent episode with Greg Gurin and okay. It went really deep. So I don't have any questions at all around the ESG movement. Could not go there. But uh, your discussion really made me think. And that's what I focus this podcast on. It's all about how to think more creatively about our health and wellness and our results. And you talk about this idea of being curious, which I think is where innovation begins. I was have questions like, why do we do this? Why am I more creative by the ocean? And so I'm just fascinated with that. And always trying to tie it back for me to education and the workplace. And there was a book that came out by Steve Case, and he was the one of the founders of AOL back in the day. And he wrote this book called Third Wave, and it was an entrepreneur's vision of the future. And he described the future of the internet and so I just wonder what you think about, you know, where do we 
come into making these new ideas that completely transform the world just by being curious. Yeah. So, so curiosity is kind of like this for, for me, the way I, I put this, and I'll try and bring this back to education and workplaces for you. Um, but kind of where I see this is curiosity is, is almost a subset of this idea of playfulness, this place, playful mindset. Um, as humans, we are naturally curious. Um, that is what has driven us to create things, to kind of look at things and go, no, that can be done better, which is essentially innovation. You know, we kind of look at something and go, oh, well, why can't it do that? Or why haven't they thought about it this way? And then all of a sudden you have a new product or business. Um, I think Einstein's um, quote on on creativity is kind of one of my favorites. And he's, he said that creativity or maybe it was innovation is is combinational play. Two ideas which have been floating around and never banged together yet until that moment. And that's exactly what curiosity is. It's what playfulness is, is experimentation of kind of going, okay, well, this is A and that's B and nobody's tried putting them together, but what happens if we do? Um, so yeah, the, the, the book that you just, just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of, this is why we have waves of innovation. Um, it's because new things come along, it's adopted. Everybody's like, wow, this is the, the, the next best thing. And most people then go, I don't think it can ever get better. We won't design a better thing. And then, hey, presto, in the technology space, it's normally about every 50 years or so. Um, we see this next revolutionary invention, which just takes us on a whole new roller coaster ride. So if we kind of trace this back, the, you know, the, the one that we're existing on right now is the semiconductor. That was the 1970s invention. Um, you know, 50 years on almost to the, the day we have AI erupting. Um, and perhaps that's the next paradigm information, uh, uh revolution. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's the curiosity that that kind of drives that and bringing this back to workplaces and, and education, I think we can bring that back a further step again. And it's what we were just talking about. It's related to our stress state. If you are, if we put stress on a scale of one to five, let's just make this really easy for everyone. Abstract thinking happens at level one, when you're calm and joyous, you're in the moment, you're not ruminating, you're not worried about the future or, or kind of regretting the past or anything else. As you move up that scale, levels two and three are really good for productivity, but they're not so good for curiosity, creativity, and abstract thinking. And then levels four and five, well, we all know those. Those are like our stressed out states. We don't want to go there, but we, we all too often are. And if we can actually learn to control that stress response, so if we can actually take that moment to pause and go, I feel like I'm on like a level two and a half, like talking to you now, I'm energized. I'm not stressed. I'm energized and I'm talking to you. I won't necessarily have my best creative thinking in this state. I'd have to come down a little bit. But then to actually implement that change, I'd have to bring myself back up to a more energized state, to a more playful state. Um, and so that's how that's how I think education and workplaces need to to kind of do it and perhaps if we have time you know it's great to talk about kind of how that environment within a workplace really supports cultural diversity neurodiversity and bringing people in uh, but but that's a that's a different topic <laughs> definitely i just have to go here for a second because it was a huge aha moment when you're talking 
because when I'm interviewing someone and asking these questions, I'll get the information, but it's not until I'm editing that I have these huge aha moments. So you just explained it because I'm on my own and I'm thinking, and that's when the connections are made and, and I can connect to other podcasts. And I do this thing at the end that, you know, where I have my aha moments from what we just discussed, but I'm not going to have it while we're talking because I don't have, I'm not low enough on that stress scale. Yeah. You're at a slightly higher arousal level because otherwise if we were like at that really calm state now, all your listeners would be like tuning in and going, is this a meditation podcast? <laughs> am i am i am i meant to have my eyes closed but that's but that's kind of when we're in these different states we access different areas of our brain um we access different memories we we access we have different capabilities and i honestly believe from the research there is this calm intelligence and that calm intelligence is around curiosity and those as you said aha moments but it's we can't live our life there all the time we have to sometimes be energized and and be playful that's the playful state where we are now um so yeah brilliant brilliant insight yeah and do you also know that playfulness was uh one of um jack pangsep's core emotions uh, he discovered it it's one of the seven core emotions of the brain uh, and we talk about it a lot in education trying to improve student learning by being playful versus all these testing tests that students have to take so i just thought it was interesting you picked playfulness in there with curiosity yeah absolutely because i think i think playfulness for me i mean firstly you're absolutely right within the education setting playfulness is key and then as soon as we become adults you're like no playfulness is for kids like as an adult you may be stressed and serious you know that's the cultural like kind of philosophy isn't it um I, I'm not supporting that by the way uh, <laughs> um but playfulness actually has some really good resiliency characteristics to it so playfulness is actually you know let's talk about uncertainty and playfulness um playfulness is uncertainty you're playing with uncertain outcomes and you're getting used to take experimental risks even a game of hide and seek you, you know, i'm not sure where the seeker is coming from but i'm going to experiment with my hiding places you know that's as a kid as an adult the challenge is really to take away the environment of play or the game of play but maintain the, the personality or the emotion of play that's what we're trying to do um and it's got some incredible kind of when we start looking at hardiness mental toughness and resiliency playfulness has some really good adaptive qualities to it because we learn how to play with uncertain environments now when you were talking there you had this big uh, uh thought of diversity and workplace could you just go there a little bit? And because I'd like to have a worldview of, you know, where are you coming from, from where you are versus where I am in the workplace and all the listeners that tune in from all over the world. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on that. Angle. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I believe, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to take a couple of steps back and kind of go the biggest breakthroughs humanity has ever seen have come from a collective intelligence whenever we incorporate more perspectives and more views we get this kind of this step this jump up in in human progress it happened at the gutenberg press it happened during the golden age of science following the telephone um we could argue it happened with hieroglyphics um 
I'd say that we're going through the next phase of that, which is the internet plus maybe machine learning and AI. Where this really comes true, though, is that's only going to happen if we can actually properly em embrace diverse workplaces. So this is not just a tick box exercise, as I think so many businesses are doing at the moment. It's like, yes, we've got the same number of males and females, or we've got the same number of this this uh, kind of racial group and, and this group. Um, where we really see the benefits for businesses as well is when they start really embracing diversity in terms of its creative potential, it bringing more and more perspectives, more life experience and more views. But this is where we then have to add stress back in. In a world that's rapidly changing and changing faster, we'd expect stress to be more, i.e. people's set point on that scale of one to five. If they generally live at a two and a half, in a more stressful and disrupted world, that might move to three, three and a half. The issue happens is when we start looking at how we behave at these different stress levels. So it's not just our thinking which changes, our relationships change too. So once you start edging up through that stress scale, you actually move from being empathetic or even intimate at level one to more disengaged, more rigid thinking, more closed thinking. You defend your ideas rather than embrace others. And so if we actually want to truly bring on board, certainly when we start talking about neurodiversity, which can have some very different angles of and viewpoints, um, I, I kind of advocate for neurodiverse. I'm, I'm autistic myself. Um, and where we find that working well is in environments where they are, have a lower stress point and they can, they can actually be open-minded. As soon as you start seeing that thinking become rigid, habitual thinking comes in, it's very, very hard for other minority groups to step in and have an equal voice. True. So how do you work on that in a corporate environment where you have numbers and metrics to make? How do you break through that? I, I, for me, I think it's coming down to actually showing leaders and, and CEOs and managers that taking these very small pauses, which allow them to control their stress state. We've been told, okay, let's, again, I keep flicking between long history and now, but as the industrial revolution happened, it wasn't just the mechanization of products. We also had the mechanization of management in that everything suddenly moved to KPIs and this target and that quarterly objective and everything went to productivity and efficiency. Those were kind of, they still are the buzzwords. Pausing is not only not uh, promoted, I would say it's actively discouraged. It's seen as laziness. If you say, oh yeah, I regularly pause, many people go, oh, so you don't do much work. Um, pausing, there's a paradox to it in that you can move faster, make clearer decisions and have more, more breakthroughs. And we're talking about micro pauses. We're not talking about kind of a vacation every other week. We're, talk we're talking about micro pauses in the, in the day, which is kind of like a minute, two minutes but it allows that person to suddenly take control of their stress state, which allows them to take control of their team, which allows them to find breakthroughs, which allows them to avoid burnout. And they actually, the productivity increases massively. And that's really the message we need to get through is, is that pausing is not detrimental to productivity. It's actually essential to it. And I think we can see that in a different way 
is that you know you you'll know these stats as well as I do, but burnout stats, uh, overwork, overload, stress, anxiety, they're all flying through the roof, especially when you start looking at workplace stress. Um, that's not productive. Let's let's be honest about that. That that there is not a productive way of working. Um, and so it, helping people and teaching people to pause, which I consider kind of the core of my coaching work. <laughs> um is i think is is the medicine that that people need now it's not easy is it to get up from your desk in the middle of the day when you're on to to do that how would you uh teach somebody to do that what would you have them do uh essentially so it's i mean let's start with the kind of the mindfulness approach i i'm going to go a little bit deeper than mindfulness so mindfulness just for your listeners sake is is essentially being in the present moment. So it's being a, a, attentive and attuned to what's going on right now, and whether that's in the environment around you or your emotions and feelings. Where where a pause really comes in is tuning into exactly how you feel physically. I'd argue, um, which is very different to how we're normally taught to kind of consider what's going on. Normally we're, we're taught to okay, well, rack my brain and think hard about how you're thinking. Um, but in a stress state, we can't trust our thinking. That's the whole point, because it's we just go round and round ruminating. But our physical state, which is obviously linked to our brain and our mind, is it's a pretty sure signal. And we have lost that ability to really kind of be introspective, very introspective, and just take a couple of deep breaths and tune into what's going on. And there's a very still, deep signal that we can get there. So my view is that emotions are actually signals. They're not things we should run from. Even the worst of emotions, they are signals to what are going on. It's our autonomic nervous system telling us it's detected something. In our modern world, though, kind of we go, oh, well, reframe it. <laughs> we don't want a negative emotion. We only want positive ones. And if I can't get there myself, I'll just drink something or eat something or go sweat it out on a treadmill until I get to that positive place but we miss this seam of information and intelligence. And that's what pausing for me is all about. And it takes some different routes for different people, but we all have this innate ability just to stop being external and become internal. And when we do that, we suddenly gain control of ourselves. And I think that's really what we've been looking for as humans for so many thousands of years. Even if you go back to Greek philosophers, self-mastery has been the ultimate goal forever. Now, what was incredible about what you just said there was, you know, just from being a podcast host, I get to test products. Um, people will come in and say, hey, I've got this product that will, you know, test your heart rate variability and tell you when you're stressed in the moment. And I thought, okay, let, let me try this out. So you tape this thing to your stomach and it um, it actually senses when you're stressed. And so I wore this for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And what was interesting to me was it started beeping at times I had no idea I was stressed. Like what you just said, take a pause. Sometimes we're so stressed, you don't even know. But then I've got this thing beeping and buzzing. And, you know, I'd be <laughs> at my desk or I'd be in the car taking the kids to gymnastics or even going to sleep at night. That like 15 minutes before I drift off to sleep, it starts buzzing. And, and it would teach me to breathe. It, it yep. said, you know, when that happens, just take some breaths 
And then my heart rate variability fixed and everything was fine. But what you just said there, I was I had this ability to test it in real time and watch it. And I was shocked at when I was stressed versus, you know, when you think you're stressed, you know, your stress is obvious, but sometimes you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. That middle ground is very hard because, and in fact, I have so many people I know who would, they live in that middle ground in that scale of two to three and a half. And they would actually even believe that that's that's normal. They would describe that as they're wired, they're driven, they're always on, they can't switch off. That's how they describe themselves. And and what they're highlighting is that they don't they don't actually realize that they are in an elevated stress position, that there is a lower band which they're just so unfamiliar with, so rarely get there that they that they actually believe the current re ream or seam they're in is um is normal and exactly the same with you as you're just saying like kind of when we're in that motivated state or we've got thoughts flying through our brain we don't th often think of the there's a physical reaction to that as well and that's what that sensor was picking up but we can do that ourselves we can we can be that sensor i honestly believe that when we kind of talk about oh we have the the world's best supercomputer in our head we have the world's best sensors in our body we are the most accurate sensing machine going. Um, and when we tune into that, we we gain an awful lot of information. And that's where the innovation comes in. So you, you have to be at that lower level to innovate and make change. And so that was my next question for you, was how does a creator or innovator make these huge quantum leaps? Like you talked about it in your podcast, you know, the, the horse, and cart to the steam engine or the candle to the light bulb. How do we get these? And, and not that I want to be the next inventor, but this is really what it takes, right? To innovate and make change. So I just wonder what you think, how do we get these huge quantum leaps or how do we make these leaps in our life? How would you instruct someone to do this? So, so I think the starting point is more breakthrough, more insight, kind of thinking, which, you know, as we've just been talking about, that all relates to stress state. Um, what you typically find with these innovators, as well as they're exposed to an awful lot of data, different situations, and it's them bringing together previous things. So come back to the Einstein quote we talked about right at the start of this, combine com combinational play, combining two different ideas which have never been thought of in the same sentence or sphere. And that's often what's what's happening. So let's take James Watt at the start of the industrial revolution with his steam engine. It wasn't his steam engine. Okay. Um, I'm sure he won't mind. He's, you know, he's not, he's not around anymore. So I can say this. Um, he didn't invent the steam engine. What he did was he innovated it. So there was a guy called Newcomb before him who had, in, who had invented the steam engine. Uh, he used it to pump water out of, out of mines. And James Watt came along and was like, oh, I can think I can do something with that which tweaks it so that it could be used in a factory setting. Um, and it was that that then caught on. And I think that provides us with a massive amount of insight in how innovation comes around, is that it's often the innovator themselves, the inventor, doesn't know the full power of what they've created. Um, they're just going, I think I can improve this, I can tweak this. Let's, let's take Gordon Moore at the start of the semiconductor. I'm, I'm pretty sure if you look at his business plan, it was something like, well, 
I think about 10 companies in the world will find this really useful. Now we have it in everything from light bulbs to cameras to everything we're using to record this podcast. Um, and so what you actually find when you look at these innovation paradigms is the innovator creates a new um, almost structure that others can then further innovate on top of. They create a new platform. So James Watts' steam engine suddenly put power into factories. It would have actually been useless if there wasn't also something called the spinning jenny in the water frame, which was the actual parts that weave together textiles in, in the mills. Just like Gordon Moore's semiconductor needed other innovators to innovate on top of his to create the, the computer or all of these other things that we now use it for. Um, and so it's about it's about insights, it's about breakthrough, it's about creativity, it's about experimentation, come back to that playfulness. Um, but it's also not necessarily about going, I'm going to change this by doing that, because we just don't know. And the beauty of the setup we have is that essentially so many tens of thousands of people are trying new things and it's the one thing that does it best that we then go, oh, wow, that's it. At the moment, we have this massive AI race on. Everybody's coming out, I've got this type of AI, I've got that AI. Who knows where that will go? There's going to be one or two, just as we saw in the dot-com boom, um, there's going to be one or two which go, yes, that is actually the technology that will take us forward. But right now, you'd be very hard-pressed to say it's definitely this one. There's so much in there. And <clears throat> just, just even looking at the graphic I picked for, for the show notes with Gordon Moore, when he came out with his Moore's Law about the computing doubling, the computing power will double every two years, he himself said, frankly, I didn't expect to be so precise. So just what you said, you can innovate, but then, you know, there was a lot more behind it that he wasn't aware of the power of it all. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, think quite often it's, it's, it's less about these very big outcome goal oriented forces, which make innovation. And it's more about people just tinkering. Um, I think in the show notes you sent me actually, kind of there was a lovely quote by Richard Feynman in there, um, a theoretical physicist. And he goes kind of, you know, curiosity has to do with people wondering what makes something do something. And then discovering that if you try and get answers, everything's related to each other. Um, I'm probably misquoting him, but <laughs> um, but it is. It's, it's that insatiable curiosity that we have uh, rather than trying to set out and necessarily solve some massive problem we will get to the massive problem, but it tends to be through people just playing with stuff that we already have and and stumbling across the next big thing. So my last question to you, I feel like can sum this all up because you know you've you've really set the stage here with decoding change and how we need to do this. And, you know, I asked for some mechanisms to help us. I really feel like that's your pause to take the two pauses. I don't think, um, yep. you know, that I think you've explained that very well. So just some final thoughts here, Chris, from listening to you speak and reading your book. What is this invisible world or what do you see that maybe I don't see and what 
the listeners could see to, you know, really look into the future and prepare ourselves better? What do you think? Okay, let's let's give this a go. It's quite a big question. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I think it's the hidden world that we need to pay more attention to. So within the futures world, we often talk about kind of an iceberg model. And the iceberg model is really kind of intuitive because if you've ever seen an iceberg or just seen one in a book, you only see a fraction of it above the water. And that's really what we all pay so much attention to. Like that's where all the mass media is focused on this event happened, that happened, this person said something, um, GDP has just gone down, like BP is just on this, whatever. It's all a visible world. And that's where we pin all our attention to. The issue, however, is that's not necessarily what really drives things forward. If you've ever wondered why a politician, when they kind of go on their campaign rally, say all these things and then get in office and do none of it, is that suddenly when they take office, they realize that their hands are tied by drivers, invisible drivers under the surface. And those drivers, to me, are the trends and megatrends. And trends and megatrends are really, really powerful forces which they can change. They can change speed and they can change direction, but they tend to do it very slowly. So if we were to talk about AI, AI hasn't just appeared. In the book, I talk about the Tamagotchi. Uh, as a kid, I had a Tamagotchi. I was one of those addicted 12-year-olds. That was really the start. We couldn't. It's not AI in the sense we're talking about it today, but the Tamagotchi was certainly more than this inanimate plastic thing. It had a life of its own, and it was a very early kind of idea of AI. Um, and so what we see by that is trends and megatrends have these incredibly long tails. What happens though commonly in society is we wait until it becomes visible and then we get shocked by it. Instead of actually stepping back from all that data, all that news flow, which is just pinning us right at the top of the iceberg and looking at the trends and megatrends. So one of the things which might help, let's see if I can clear all this up because I feel like I've just muddied the waters. Um, let's see if I can clear this up for you and your listeners, um, is the way I kind of suggest looking at these things is through layers. Um, and I have no idea why we're not taught this at school. Um, but when we're looking at global change, massive, massive change, we have to think of it in layers. Not everything updates at the same speed and not everything when it updates has the same magnitude of change. That's the first principle of the layer model. At the top of that is product. We're very used to products updating annually, seasonally, monthly, maybe even weekly. Below product, we have business. Now, businesses obviously update slower than products because they're the ones creating them. It's then when we start to come down to the next few layers that we really start to understand that, okay, this is why we get massive changes. We, we don't see change necessarily, or we can get blindsided by it. So below business, we, we basically get that infrastructure. And infrastructure is what we've been talking about with AI, technology developments. That's really kind of the what all these businesses are built on. Below that, we get regulation. Normally, regulation updates because businesses come along, new businesses, new, inf new infrastructure comes along, and regulation just kind of goes, okay, well, we need to update. Now, we're actually seeing proactive regulation that's driving change, either because that's around cultural philosophy or whether that's around the natural environment, but we're seeing changes originate there. That's then we come down below regulation, we come to cultural philosophy. We've kind of touched on that in our conversation, saying that we had this massive shift in cultural philosophy and in the Industrial Revolution, and we're now seeing a shift again. 
one of the interesting things there is we are seeing younger generations actually change the behaviors and outlook of older generations. That's new. In society, normally the elders of society teach the younger generations how to think and how to behave in the models. Um, so that's really interesting. And then the bottom layer of change is the natural environment. And when we see that move, it has its own inertia. It has its own magnitude of change that we can't even comprehend. And so as you go up through the model, the top layers update really quickly, but don't really have much effect. And the lower down, the slower the change, but the more impactful. And it's really, I think, looking through the world through those layers and just going, well, okay, well, what's moving? And this is where you start to see demographics move. The West is getting older. Um, you know, kind of the global order is shifting. Who knows quite who takes it next um, or whether America hangs on to it, but it's it's slowly moving. Um, we're seeing older populations. We're seeing certainly kind of effects of that natural environment moving. And we're definitely seeing changes in that cultural philosophy from just the way businesses are running um, and operating. But that model, hopefully the layers, put it in some kind of framework and you can start to go, okay, well, where is this change coming from in that model? And is it a fast moving layer or is it a slow moving layer? And the slower ones, they, they obviously take longer to come through, but when they do, they bring massive change, real paradigm shifting change. That's fascinating. Chris, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, you just gave me a lot to think about because I've been thinking about how could education change. And I think in my lifetime, am I ever going to see it? It's slow changing. But, you know, as, as you talked about, uh, you know, the change happens and we can see it. We can see innovations. We can see it happening. What do you think about education? Yeah, so I, th I think education has a real need to, to move. Um, we're still, I believe, primarily churning out people as if they're machines, um, that we equip them with just enough knowledge to kind of be productive in an economy. Um, but again, I think that's still very much in the model of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and what we need to see is far more around state management, stress management, and kind of that self-mastery that, that we've been talking about um, <clears throat> because in a, the next couple of decades I really do think are going to be some of the most disruptive that we will see in, in human history um, and that's going to require a different skill set to yes science and maths and English are a really important subject but they don't equip you for disruptive environments and you very clearly laid up out what does prepare us for a disruptive environment. So I want to thank you so much for your time today coming on the podcast. And you do uh, keynotes and you do coaching. Is is the best place for people to find you the uncertaintyscientist.com or what's the best place? Yeah, that's probably the best place. Um, there's links to all my stuff from there, really. Um, so yeah, if, ever, if anybody's interested in those bits, then if they head that way, they can they can find my work. And I hope that everybody picks up your book, Decode Change. I know your ideas will challenge us to all think in an entirely different way. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fascinating. 
If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 